pod is back. The college basketball season has less than a month until Selection Sunday. We are plugging along. And, uh, Brad, it's always fun when the number one team in the country goes down. It's even more fun when that happens in a road game that causes a court storm. And uh, I'll just let you know, Brad, it's the most fun when that's happening at your alma mater and you're at the game. Well, I mean, you were such a vocal critic of Chris Collins. I, I saw your tweet that had you in the press room. Was he was he gloating to you? Was he was he flashing his clip of money like Jim Laranaga? <laughs> no, no money clip. Um, he did make some like thinly veiled remarks to like people thought think our rebuild should have gone faster, and you know a lot of people said we couldn't win in close games. To which I would just point at his record in close games. But for this season um well, no he just had to shovel off like three starters in two yeah, years exactly um Pete Nance looked like crap today by the way it's it's awful I mean he's hurt he looks he's, very stiff. he's always been stiff but it's been like yeah, stiff with a pop stiff. of skill this was just stiff <laughs> no doubt um but yeah Northwestern beats Purdue um solidifies itself as an NCAA tournament team solidifies itself as a contender to get a double buy in the Big Ten tournament as a top four seed, um, which is bananas if we've if you've heard us talk about Northwestern in the preseason, kind of where we expected them to be. Obviously, you know, it's been talked about at length, the fact that they rebuilt their defense and, you know, do all these post doubles and some of this more unique stuff that they've done to try to give themselves a chance with a, a thin front on been spoken about at length about Boo Booey and Chase Audige and how they've played. But I don't think anyone really anticipated that they would be, you know, near the top of the league. They thought, okay, maybe, you know, you, you might've said, okay, maybe they can, you know, fight their way to the bubble and sneak into the tournament, but to be nine and five, to have now, you know, five big 10 road wins and then beat the number one team of the country. I mean, again, they, they have a, they've, they've had just kind of this magic about them. And that was, very evident on Sunday when they trailed by eight at the final media time out of the game. Um, drop a you know a three for Ty Berry that's off, get an offensive rebound. Chase Audis, who can't make a shot all night, drills it. Then you get a steal and a quick run out for, a, for an Audis dunk. He's confident. The building's bananas. And Purdue just completely melts down. They can't get a – they can't find a – Good shot. They're turning it over. Um, Audige is going crazy. The crowd is building an energy. And it was just one of these games. And I think I said it probably just last podcast, like, you know, Purdue all year has been so poised and its guards have been just steady. And I don't blame it on the guards. I didn't think that it was Lawyer and Smith's fault. But there was just a lot of disheveled basketball from Purdue, particularly in that final four minutes where, you know, Edie was throwing guys, throwing the ball to spots, but not you know, players weren't there. I'm not sure that was on Edie or on the on the players. I asked Matt Painter, and he said, you know, there's a lot of reads in their in, in their offense, especially against double teams. And you know, it just seemed like guys were weren't on the same page. Um, it didn't help that Purdue just could not make a jump shot. Um, and obviously, Northwestern defense requires you to make jump shots. But all the credit in the world to to the Wildcats. Um, I've said for a while, like I. I think Northwestern has underachieved the last five years and they've blown a lot of the momentum that the program built in 2017. I think Northwestern is a much better job than the perception is or the history suggests it should be because it is 
you know, it has great facilities. It has great location, great conference. Um, you know, you can sell the academics to the right, the right kids. It's not a place you're going to win every year, but why can't it be close to what the expectations are in a place like Stanford? Why can't it be a decent job? Why can't it be a place where you go to the NCAA tournament somewhat regularly? And, and I think the last five years, there's no question Northwestern lost a lot of games it could have and probably should have won but this year they have just found a way to build build confidence in these types of situations have won some really impressive road games against good teams like Indiana and Michigan State um, have taken care of business when they've needed to have um, battled back when things have looked bleak like when they lost two in a row to going into a two-game road trip and then um, this Purdue game they then turn around and win all three games. Like they have just had a different kind of resolve um, than the Northwestern teams in past years. And again, that credit is to to the guys who've been in that program for a long time, like Bowie and Audige and Barron, and also to, to Chris Collins, who, again, I mean, I, I think I've said, I've said this before, like good coaches can do bad jobs. Bad coaches can do good jobs. And most coaches are somewhere in between. Um, and I think Chris Collins probably did a bad job in a couple of years. And I think he would probably admit that. And I think he's done a really good job with this group. And where, you know, the idea that there's just like a, and we've talked about this in the context of other, other things, Brad, like that if they're like unimpeachable coaches, there's maybe a couple of them, right? There's, you know, Bill Self is probably relatively unimpeachable. No one's unimpeachable. But, you know, even the way we've seen, you know, Tony Bennett miss NCAA tournaments and Leonard Hamilton miss NCAA tournaments and, you know, all, all these guys that it seemed like, oh, you know, this guy has no chance of ever failing. Guys fail and, and you know, quote unquote, bad coaches or guys who don't like. I mean, there's certain guys who I think, you know, you feel pretty good in saying like are just not qualified or not good enough to be a high major coach. Like Patrick Ewing is not good enough to be a high major coach. Patrick Ewing did make an NCAA tournament. Like that's like that's college basketball. Like you can like you can piece it together. Right. And get the get the get the mojo going. And Northwestern has has an incredible kind of mojo and, and vibe about them. Right. They're a fun team to watch. And I'm looking forward to watching them the rest of the way. I mean, you did say, why can't Northwestern have the same standards as Stanford? I don't know about Stanford standards. But the standards were pretty high at one point. I mean, they made the NCAA tournament regularly for, you know, the 15 years prior to Johnny Dawkins. But then they just said to do a Jared Haas, like, yeah, you can just keep collecting checks. That's fine. And, and Stanford and, and Jared Haas got a huge win over the weekend over Arizona as part of a wild slate in college basketball that saw four unranked teams beat ranked opponents, um, several big upsets, and a, a just generally disastrous weekend for bubble teams. Almost so disastrous that it didn't matter what you did. It almost didn't register. It, it was like, oh my god, USC lost to Oregon State? Like, I didn't even know that game was going on. Right. A lot of the teams, a lot of like results were individually, you'd feel like, oh man, they're cooked. In reality, it didn't it didn't do much. I mean, I I would certainly point to Brad uh, the New Mexico game on Friday night. Um, they get blitzed by a really not like a not good Air Force team. I mean, they're it's an outside quad quad one and two game. Like that's that's a game you got to win. They get blitzed in that game. They they do like, a lot okay, of back cuts and yes. you know this. They're and that. very well coached, very well schooled. They're just not that talented. Um, but you get blitzed and they're like, okay, New Mexico's dead. You know, they, they're going to need to really move the needle here down the stretch to get in the tournament. 
and you look up on Monday after all the dust settles, like, well, everybody else took a shitty loss too. So who cares? Yeah, and the shitty losses weren't just for the bubble teams. Um, you briefly touched on, on on Arizona, who in my head is still an elite team. The the, the name Arizona resonates with me as like being scared if if they were my opponent coming up. Uh, but now they've had like three just like wacky losses with Stanford, Washington State, and Utah. Yeah. Teams that aren't very good. I, I, I mean, Utah's like an NIT team. Washington State was probably NIT if they were healthy. Stanford is obviously terrible. But this is Arizona, number one seed Arizona, who has all these great wins. What do you make of them? And you, know, you, you could probably throw Tennessee in this mix too. They're just doing a lot of wacky stuff. So with with Arizona, um, and I mentioned this on Phil C after dark this weekend with Goodman and, and Tyler Hansbro. Finally let you um, finally let you back on. It was a lovely show. We had a great time. Uh, um, I, I mentioned this. So it's Arizona in their eight game winning streak. Excuse me, seven game winning streak. Had the second best defense in the country per T-rank. It's not a huge sample size, but, you know, three-ish weeks of basketball where they played really, really well defensively. And that's a, you know, that that's a big change. That's something they've struggled with. It was an issue last year. Um, it got, you know, even worse theoretically this year with with Ballo in at the five versus Coloco, who's a better rim protector, a better, a more switchable guy. Um, and I think if you were looking for reasons to buy Arizona as like a team that can win the national championship, say wow like like they're really defending right now and if if they can defend at this level and put the pressure on the rim that they do with that they do with Ballo and with um Tabella excuse me they're gonna be really really good and they go out against Stanford and they give up 1.3 points per possession you know 60 percent from 64 percent from two 56 percent from three like just got torched and again part of that is you know, water finding its level, right? Like teams shot the ball not so great from deep against Arizona in that stretch. Teams probably missed some monies that, you know, they you wouldn't expect them to miss. At the same time, like just like a step slow, kind of lowish intensity, generally effort from Arizona. And that is a little bit concerning. I think part of it is probably like, do you think Arizona looks ahead, looks looks past some of these teams? Like there's just like enough of a gap in the Pac-12 where they wake up in the morning, like, yeah, we can beat Washington State. Who cares? Yeah, I guess it's just how much do they care about winning the Pac-12 regular season? Which at this point they're they're done, I think, 11 to four, while UCLA is 12 and two. They would need UCLA to lose another game and beat UCLA towards the end of the season. Well, like if they really cared about their potential one seed. Um, which I'm not sure how much players really think about tournament seeding and all that stuff. You know, I think that they're just human and they can fall fall victim to low energy games and looking past teams. But right, and I mean, I think I think there's also something he said like Arizona is built to be somewhat volatile. Right, they play really really fast. Their point guard is still Kirk Carissa. Like the last time I checked, Kirk Carissa is. Very high. The highs are very high. The lows are very low. Um, 
you know, against Stanford, he was not very good, right? He scores 10 points, but it's on 10 shots. He has more turnovers than assists. Like, you're not going to win a lot of games that way. And you're not going to win a lot of games when you defend it the way they've defended. Um, I, I would be curious, and I watched a good amount of this game, and a lot of it was that Tubelis was in foul trouble, but Tubelis and Ballo combined for seven total shot attempts in this game. Like, I would be curious to go back and watch the film and try to figure out what Stanford did just deny those touches. Because, I mean, look, like Stanford has a lot of these, like, bigger wing athletes, right? You think of Jones and Harrison Ingram, Max Morell, but they don't have a ton of, like, pure size. They have, like, the skinny, um, skinny big Maxime Reynaud. They have the... Um, the Brandon Angel kid who's like six eight, but still again more in that like combo forward archetype. I'd be curious to go back and watch and see if there's anything like that they did, or if it was just Arizona just not getting them involved. But like the recipe for Arizona is not going to be to shoot 35 threes in a game, regardless. Like regardless of whether um, Ramey is making them, right? Like they made 14 threes in this game and still got torched. Right, I mean, they have the best front court in the country. Front court duo, I mean, you you could make a case for maybe Zach Eady and you know whether it be Gillis or 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 or, or first just because Eady's so dominant. But for the, the the a two man group being so dominant, I mean, Arizona's got to be up there with with anyone. Yeah, I, they also like. Fully just don't play another big man off the bench. Right. They go sometimes a Larson at the four. They'll go with a Vizar a little bit, but. I mean, Vizar has really not played much. Vizar has, the last time Vizar played more than six minutes in a game was the Arizona State game on New Year's Eve. Kind of feels yeah. like um, the Seton Hall team where Sandro Mamokelishvili was a freshman, and he would literally just play pre-media timeouts to get Angel Delgado an extra blow. And he'd yeah. end up getting, like, four minutes on, like, four different ch- check-ins. It is also funny that the, you know, quote-unquote international whisperer, um, Tommy Lloyd, he inherits Tubelis, inherits – or brings over Umar Brava, fine. Um, but like this, 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 this class with um, Visar and Barova Cannon, uh, and then the kid that they took last year, Adama Ball. I mean, none of these guys really play. The issue is, you got to be patient with these young guys. Right. But with the transfer portal, you are also incentivized to just, you know, play guys over them. And it feels this is anecdotal. But it feels like teams are using their bench less than in previous years. I do keep looking up and be like, well, that team's got no depth. That team's got no depth. Well, who's using their bench then? I feel like teams are just willing to just play their best players 40 minutes more now. And like Cooley always did that. Um, more so when he had to. But he, even even when he had depth, he would still play, you know, like the 
Chris Dunn's and the Kyron Cartwright's forty minutes. Uh, and he's basically doing that with Hopkins and Carter this year. But it feels like every team is doing that with their best players. You know, um, UNC does that with all their guys. And what's so interesting about that, Brad, is like you contrast that with a period in the sport where like there's fewer kids redshirting than ever. And there's more depth on paper. I mean, how many teams did we go up and down in the offseason and just marvel at their depth? No doubt. No doubt. Um, Here's fun trivia for you. So high major teams, the three least used benches, number three is Creighton, number two is North Carolina. Who's number one? The least used bench. Um, Five minutes per game. Minutes per game. Not, not Villanova. They use their guys. Yes. Um, could it be Louisville? It is not Louisville. Let me see where Louisville ranks. Hold on. So Louisville is 200 or 219th in bench minutes. So pretty average. It's so the middle of the pack. I know one that uses their bench a ton at Seton Hall uh, and then UConn. Um, Let me check Seton Hall for you. Indiana uses their bench a ton. Eaton Hall is 92nd in bench. Villanova is 255th in bench. All right, I'll give you one more guess, and I'm going to give it to you. All right, I'm going to go with... Shit. You're going to tick yourself when you don't get this. No. I'm going to go with the team that does not use their bench is Maryland. Nope. How about Notre Dame? Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> I told you. I, I asked to myself because they, they're missing two rotation guys early, and now guys are hurt. They don't play any defense. They're just running those guys out. So They already had no bench. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, the, yes, I am kicking myself. The most used high major benches are Georgia, which I don't think I would think about, but I also don't really like follow their rotations that much. Um, TCU, which makes a lot of sense. And number three is Ole Miss. So. Ole Miss and uh, TCU were two teams that we put in that depth category in the preseason. Yes. But for Ole Miss, it has been a bunch of, like, sixth best players. And for right. TCU, it's been good enough. So. And then injuries with Ole Miss. I think Ruffin's been hurt. Merle's been or, uh, Merle's been hurt. But yeah, ha- Ole Miss was dead to me when they gave me a strike and eliminator challenge, losing to North Alabama on like a Tuesday afternoon. That was it for me with, with Ole Miss this year. I watched them play Siena at eight in the morning Pacific time on a Thanksgiving Black Friday. That's the extent of my Ole Miss viewing since the uh, North Alabama debacle, other than the North Alabama debacle. I mean, talk about debacles. Siena lost to Georgetown. Hater. What if what if Georgetown didn't end up beating DePaul and then they went 0 20 again and it's like the last game that Patrick Ewing won was against Siena? Would you be like, into that trivia answer, or, or would that bring you deep shame? 
I don't think it would bring me shame. It's still a high major game. Watching Georgetown last week, they're not as scary in person as they, as as, as the idea of Georgetown. And it sounds like Kudus Wahab may, may have bailed. Um, yeah, it appears that that same handler who uh, shipped them off to uh, to College Park is now shipping them off to who knows where. But yeah, I, I mean, with, with with the restricting the leniency on these transfers, really not not doing anyone any good. You know, like you could be given a nice shot in the arm to like Marist to have Kudus Wahab as their center. Now it's like, well, now you got to sit out a year. You're gonna be like, screw this. I'm not gonna sit out at Marist. Can you imagine if Kudus uh, Wahab was at Marist? Think he'd give Armo the work. Who was the was it was, was named Jermaine was named Jermaine Lawrence, the Cincinnati five star who went to Manhattan. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. And I Iona had Norvell Pell briefly. That's true. He never played, but he did get there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's a nice little uh, that's that's the the CV Central podcast sidebar of the week. Uh, presented by, I don't know, we'll make up a sponsor later. Um, <laughs> wanted to talk about Tennessee, Brad. You mentioned them having some wacky performances. Um, and I, I think it is noteworthy. To, uh, which is ironic. Uh, I, I, I was not able to watch this game either, which is ironic because I still have never seen Missouri play this year. Um, and I think they're playing tomorrow, right? And I'm at the Providence game, so... I think I was never going to watch Missouri this year. But they do play tomorrow. They, they have Texas A&M on Saturday. Six, six Eastern. Uh, Province played at 4.30. Home. <laughs> All right, Mississippi State the next Tuesday, 7 Eastern. Is that on SEC Network? I don't get SEC Network. I haven't looked. No, but we'll see. Either way. So, so Tennessee, a few things here. Number one. Obviously, it is bad that they have lost three or four. They have not really looked all that good in doing it. But I also would like to point out that if not for two buzzer beaters, and the Missouri one in particular was rather rather prayer-like, Tennessee is playing Alabama at home on Wednesday for a spot at number one in the country in the polls. Yeah. Like, like maybe the rea- the overreactions need to slow down a little bit. I mean, it's it's what Ken Palm and shot quality and all this stuff is built off of, right? It's like there there's there's kind of lucky or you know or, or more fortunate performances, like when a team like UNC goes whatever four for thirty from three tonight, and then there are lucky or fortunate performances when they get like a full court thirty foot buzzer beater to go down. Yes. So like with Tennessee. And again, we know that Tennessee is a good but flawed team, that its March hopes are predicated on it, the fact that they're going to have to make jump shots very consistently because they don't really have a guy to create his own offense, and they don't necessarily have a post presence that you're throwing the ball to and you know scoring. It is a team that has to run sets. It is a team that needs to execute at a high level. It is like relatively shocking that they would lose a game like the one they did against Missouri where they give up 1.3 points per possession. Because when Tennessee makes 12 threes, when Tennessee is runs efficient offense, you don't expect Tennessee to not blow the opponent down, let alone lose. Um, 
and that's what happened here. So I'm somewhat inclined to just kind of write it off, right? Like whatever. But when you have three kind of write it off performances in the span of a week and a half, maybe you can't write it off. Maybe you have to really take seriously the fact that Tennessee is, you know, is just not good. Right? And I, I, my my thing is this, like, I, I almost view the March Madness side of it separately. Like, I almost, like, take the prior understanding that we're like, yeah, Tennessee is probably limited in the NCAA tournament. Where would you stand on Tennessee just as, like, a regular season team after the last week and a half? I think probably top 15 is fair. And now they they – they haven't had the real Josiah James, right? He's been in and out of the lineup. I think yes. he missed this weekend. What's up with a uh, a plop just doesn't start anymore? Is that old news? Am I am I late on that one? He didn't start on on Saturday, but he's someone who I like. Uh, but like, if I'm so so, how how I would view it, you know, kind of similar to how I view Arizona, right? Is if I'm looking at you know, Providence is a seven seed and we get Tennessee as a two seed in the second round. I'm very scared. Right. If you, you know, put a gun to my head and say, who's going to win Tennessee or Marquette? I'm probably picking Tennessee, you know, Tennessee or Xavier. I'm probably picking Tennessee, Tennessee, or Virginia. I'm probably picking, you know, so it just gets to a point where even with some kind of head scratching performances, I'm still a believer to some extent. I still think they're probably a top 12, top 15 team. Well, so 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 here's my thing. Because I was talking with a bunch of buddies, and someone said, well, Tennessee is like a fraud. Like, how in the world are they 10th still in the AP poll? And the AP poll is flawed. We've gone over this. Where's your room? You can't get out. Well, that too. But so, 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 I, so I, I sat there, and I was like, okay, well – Like, who would you like to rank ahead of them? Right. So I went through the next uh, the next five teams in the poll, 11 through 15. 11 through 15. Marquette, same number of losses, same number of Q1 and Q2 wins. Marquette is a quadrant three loss. Number two, or number 12, excuse me, Kansas State. Quadrant three loss to the Wisconsin Badgers. Sure, correct. Number three, or number number twelve is Kansas State, who has the same number of losses. They're worse in every metric, and they've lost three or four, just like Tennessee has. Then you got Gonzaga at thirteen. Even if we want to ignore the fact that Gonzaga got blown out by Tennessee in the exhibition game, I don't think anyone who's watched Gonzaga is like, man, that team has to be in the top ten, right? Indiana has more losses than Tennessee. Tennessee, I think, pretty clearly has a better body of work than Indiana. Maybe Indiana's playing a little bit better basketball today. I'm open to that. But, you know, saying oh, they, they, it, it's, it's absurd that they're not, you know, higher than Indiana or Tennessee. It, it's crazy to me. And then Miami at 15. Well, Miami's playing pretty well. There's one at North Carolina. Miami's also like 35th in Kenpon. I get it's not just metrics, right? It should be more than that. It should be results based. But you know, Miami lost to Georgia Tech. And I think throwing the resume stuff aside, you know, what makes Tennessee so scary to me as a potential opponent, or what makes me think Tennessee's better than you know Marquette and 
Miami and, and all, all these teams, I think they have two very good guards yes. who, who can score right and shoot with Ziegler and, and Viscovi. They have a huge front line filled with super physical dudes. Like if they played Marquette, that physicality would definitely give Marquette serious problems. So, especially if, if UConn's physicality gave Marquette's problems or Providence's did back in December. I mean, Tennessee is one of the biggest and most physical front lines in the country. And then they have a wild card if 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 he can get back with the Josiah James, who, you know, is the the ultimate kind of Swiss Army knife blue guy type. Solid bench with um, you know, more size, more physicality, a good scoring guard in Tyree Key, and then uh I, I guess he's a starter now, but Julian Phillips is a, a, a five-star who, who can hit shots. So um, aesthetically, there, there's a lot to like. You just went through the resume, which is still pretty comparable with other teams in that in that top 10, top 15. The analytics are still in on Tennessee. So um, for me, yeah, keep them keep them ranked high. So my my thing too with with this is like. These things will all sort themselves out, right? Like Tennessee's next 10 days of basketball, Tennessee has home Alabama, who is asserting itself as perhaps the best team in the country. Then you have road Kentucky, who, you know, we know is a limited basketball team, right? But they already beat Tennessee in Thompson Bowling Arena. They still have Oscar Shibwe. And then road Texas A&M, who's, you know, quietly in the top three of the SEC playing terrific basketball. Tennessee doesn't win those games. Yeah, whatever. They're a fraud. Like, if they, if they lose the next three, they're done. Fine. No complaints. All right? You want to say they suck? That's cool. You want to give them a four seed or a five seed? It's fine with me. That being said... All the people who are like, oh, Tennessee is you know, completely fraudulent, completely terrible, no good. They have no chance, no hope. Well, what happens if they win the next three? Like, are, are we acting like such, such a crazy world that Tennessee will win all, 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 five, all six of these remaining games in their schedule, which they have then home South Carolina, home Arkansas at Auburn to close the year? We think it's so crazy that they would do that. They're favored in every game for Ken Palm. Like, what happens when they went out and then win the SEC tournament? Oh, they're fraudulent still? Well, they'd be 25, they'd be 20, 28 and 6 with wins over Alabama, Kansas, uh, Texas, you know. They yeah, have in the Bahamas. Right. Like, what are we doing? Like, what are, what are you know, let's just give it some time let's see how things go i mean this is a this is a season where iowa and penn or iowa and illinois were like oh and three in the big 10 Iowa lost eastern illinois like teams have come teams have gone tennessee still has its limitations in march we recognize that we understand that but used to not watch to watch tennessee and not say to myself yeah that team can beat anyone in the country that team at its best is as scary as any team in the country so we'll see where it goes Speaking of teams who have gone, Ohio State. Oh, my goodness. Who at, at one point, it was like this team is going to be the second best team in the Big Ten. The analytics were all over them. Um, they, so in terms of analytics, 
on New Year's Day, they knocked the crap out of Northwestern on the road. I, I watched that game. Um, then they played Purdue tough on the fifth. Then it just all unraveled. They so they were so they were they were ninth in Ken Palm on January eighth when they lost a tough roadie at Maryland. Yeah. They are so now fifty first. So they lost at Maryland. Then they lost at home to Minnesota on the Fox All Access game. Which they shouldn't have lost that game, right? They got they got kind of jobbed. Um then at Rutgers and at Nebraska were both close games. The Rutgers game was overtime. That if I remember correctly, that that had a crazy ending as well. Um then they then they beat Iowa at home by 16 points. And then since then, it's been six losses, each one basically being worse than the next, kind of capped off with a uh, a 21-point home beatdown by a, a very average Michigan State team. Like very 8-9 eight, eight, seed vibes from it. Michigan State. They knocked the crap out of Ohio State. Um, in the schedule, their remaining six games are against five tournament teams and Penn State. Um you know, they have at Iowa and at Purdue this upcoming week. So where did it all go wrong, number one? Number two, does this encourage a Chris Holtman bolt? Or has this damaged his stock where he might as well just stay and make his money and turn it around next year? I mean, it's fascinating, like, what has happened. Because I think... I hadn't really looked that closely at the game of it until just now. And I, I think it is kind of notable that, like, that losing skid in January, they they were right there. Right there in every game. Like, yeah. they lost to Purdue by two points in a game that they led with under a minute's plan. And then they lose, you know, you mentioned the Rutgers game that goes to overtime. The Minnesota game was like right there. Yeah, they, they led with under a minute to go against uh, against Rutgers. Or no, they were tied with under a minute to go against Rutgers. Um, like they're, they're, they were like, I, you just wonder if like after a while you lose a few close games and you just kind of lose your confidence and you start kind of beating on each other. Because I'll, I'll say like when I went to them playing Illinois in late January, I just I, I didn't think they were a very good basketball team, a very together basketball team. They were getting destroyed on the interior. Um, I, I thought they really, really struggled um, with their cohesion. And it's still it's just getting worse and worse like against Northwestern. They made so many kind of losing plays down the stretch, helping off, you know, they're, they're like raking down from the strong side corner and giving up wide open threes to stop. Never help one pass away. Right. Like, what are you doing? Like, there were just so many, like, like one, Boo Boo was like the only guy on the team who can pass. Number two, Boo Boo is like never made a left-hand layup, but you're naturally helping on a left-hand drive, trying to rake. What are you doing? Like, they make a lot of dumb decisions. I think the chemistry's not great. I, I still think Holtman will be back, but like, there's more, there's more fire here. This is not just going to be like, oh yeah, like the fans on Twitter are kind of angry. Like, I, I don't think they even can fire him, even if they wanted to. Um, I mean, they can. It's Ohio State. Like, you find the money. But, like, 
I don't think there's like any, it, it would take like a real, real push to do that. But I mean, I would a hundred percent start thinking about Notre Dame if I was Chris Holden, because, you know, once you get on the hot seat, once you earn the ire of the fans, it is very hard to get off. Right. I mean, you talk about Brad Brownell, you think about, um, some other good examples. I mean, Richard Pitino is a great example of this. Richard Pitino made NCAA tournaments, but because he was once a hot seater, it is very hard to just be like steadily the guy. Can you can you think of someone who has like fully shed the hot seat forever? Chris Collins, baby. Perhaps, perhaps. But we don't know yet. And it's Northwestern. It's a very unique situation. Ohio State, obviously not like that. I mean, so, they, people were, were were very upset with Kevin Willard. It took him, I think, four or five years to make the first NCAA tournament right. at Seton Hall. Um, that, that's probably a good example, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, there were a bunch of URI fans that were mad at Dan Hurley until he made the first NCAA tournament, I think, in year four. Um, yeah, it, it just kind of happens everywhere. You know, and, it, and like, you, you look at, like, specific instances, and, like, Richard Pitino, it's – Reggie Lynch gets kicked off the team, who was yes. like probably the best player. He, he was one of the best big men and best rim protectors in college basketball. He was a monster. Um, so that team got its legs cut cut out from under him. And then a couple years later, they get another down a big man in Liam Robbins, and he gets hurt. Um, so, and and that all falls apart as well. So, 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 so I think I think the only question with Holtman is this: Is there upside? to getting out before it burns, right? Like the chance that like, oh, like, what, like what happens if Ohio State stinks next year too? But here, here's the thing that I, I, I remember bringing this up or probably around this time last year. Like a lot of this coaching change and hot seat stuff is coming from like a punitive point of view. Whereas like we need to punish this guy for not living up to expectations. But like you don't want to be punitive you want to have the guy who has the best chance of getting you back to where you want to be right and like you look at calipari and it's kind of the same thing like yeah he's killing you but like he's got a great class he's done it before he can put the teams together and and he's owed a lot of money um well and again it's just, well, I, think, yeah. I think i think it's just one of those things where like if you're going to replace a guy who has a decent track record of success, you had better have a real good plan of where you're going, right? Like if you're Kentucky and you want to fire Cal or you want to push Cal to Texas, whatever you want to do, you better know you're getting like a Nate Oates and Eric Musselman, like that level of coach, right? right? And I think without a doubt, Kentucky would, would be able to pull a name like that. Scott Drew, Eric Musselman, whatever. Someone who's accomplished something. And I don't remember if we, we I don't remember if we talked about this on last podcast. We might have, but like the idea that like, you know, Ohio State's like like I'm seeing like oh Ohio State should hire T.J. Otzelberger. Okay, like do we know he's taking that job? I don't feel great about saying Otz is taking that job. Like I mean, Wisconsin fans are all like we want T.J. Otzelberger. One like T.J. Otzelberger's never accomplished anything outside of Iowa State. Number two like is he leaving? I don't think so. But it's 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 a tough assumption that you know the, the these these guys who are making you know three or four million dollars a year and having success would leave for a higher pressure situation 
for just a cut, co- you know, just a couple more million, but you and know, they might not even get that much more. Like that's the thing. Yeah, like how much does Scott Drew make? Like if Scott Drew, let's say he makes three million, and he's got Baylor rolling, he won a national championship, he's bringing in five stars. Right. They're like they're they're killing it. Is he gonna go, want to go start from scratch at Kentucky for five million a year? I think there's like a legacy to Kentucky, right? I think that matters. I think there's like a vanity to it. I think that would be the case. Like, there's also like the fans are freaking crazy and are, are gonna bug you at the grocery store and they're gonna be in your mentions every time you lose. And like, did you know that Baylor like doesn't even have a real beat writer? I've I I only know that because I've seen people tweet about it. Yeah. Like, like think about going from that to Kentucky. Yeah, I mean, even, even Providence has like three beat writers. Right. Yeah. It's banana. Like North uh, Sienna has four. <laughs> Bananas. Um. So I don't know. Like, I think my thing with Holtman is you better know who you're getting, right? Like, and I, I think I don't think Ohio State's firing him this year. And I think with the Notre Dame question to kind of finish my previous thought. I think if you're Holtman, you still feel pretty good that you can get something else at this level. Maybe it's not Notre Dame, but you can get something at this level if you get fired. Right? Like, worst case, Chris Holtman comes back next year. He loses, you know, Sensabaugh and Suing and, you know, McNeil and all these guys and brings in this recruiting class with Devin Royal and all these guys. And he, you know, gets like an 11 seed and they push him out the door. Right? Something like that. Or misses the tournament. Maybe goes to the NIT. How about, this? how about this? All, all, all the St. John's fans are cl- are clamoring for Rick Pitino. Wouldn't wouldn't you rather have Chris Holtman? Well, what about? I mean, I would rather have. I think I'd start with Pitino. I mean, Holtman made a Sweet 16 in Butler. He had Ohio State as a two seed a couple of years ago. He's a victim of the expectations. And he's obviously what twenty years younger than Patricia? right. I just think Holtman would leave again. That's true. Um, how about this? What about Mike Bray? I wanted to go here next. Why is Mike Bray a high major coaching candidate still? I don't know. Yeah. Because <laughs> again, like Goodman tweeted that, and like I, you know, checked in with some people, and like. You know, people like yeah, like 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 I could see him getting Georgetown or St. John's, and like obviously that's that's certainly an upgrade from Patrick Ewing. No one is claiming no otherwise. Doubt. It's probably an upgrade from Mike Anderson. I think okay. it's I think it's definitely an upgrade over Mike Anderson. I mean Notre Dame was horrible this year. The roster construction was ridiculous, and now listen, listen hands up, hand up. I had Notre Dame in my last four in in the preseason. So I didn't quite see how alarming it would be. I knew that that, that they were going to suck on defense, kind of like they sucked last year on defense, I believe, right? Um, but, you know, I, I, I bought into the J.J. Starling hype and this and that. Um, like, they're really bad. And last year they were in the last four in. And prior to that, they had a few bad years as well. They've made one NCAA tournament in the last six years once this year goes final. And this is a high major coaching candidate? He's also like, what, 60? He's not young. I mean, he had some some awesome teams that I love to watch. No doubt. 
with Tim, Tim Abramitis and Zach August and Ben Hansborough going way back, like Bonzi Colson, but even the Bonzi Colson team was like five, six years ago. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I just think, like, like, I could see him at, like, you know, somewhere down south or, like, a mid-major where he gets kind of, like, a retirement job. It, But the idea of investing at that level, like, you know, first of all, like, I don't know that Mike Bray is coaching in seven years, right? I'm going to make a hire. I don't want it to be like a three-year and bust situation unless I'm getting Rick Pitino. Um, I don't know. I just – I understand why he'd be an option. I understand why he'd be talked about. But, like, I would be with you. I'd be concerned. I also think, like, I'd want to know, like, what he plans on doing differently. Because his whole thing was get old, stay old. The past two years, he's had a fresh point guard. Right. Also, like, is he going to recruit more athletes? Is he going to recruit the portal? Is it a Notre Dame thing that he couldn't recruit the portal? I mean, they definitely – I mean, they right. had Eric Sherman, Sherman way back in the day. Right. I think it is harder – I think, again, it is harder with undergrad transfers. No, it's harder with grad transfers, right? No, it's harder with undergrads. Harder with undergrads. Right. Because undergrads, you have to worry about credits being taken. But yeah, for transfers, I mean, obviously on this team they have Trey Wirtz, Marcus Hammond. Right, but Trey Wirtz did come from a higher academic school, Santa Clara. Yeah, I mean, Cormac Ryan was Stanford, Marcus Marcus Hammond, Niagara. I think there are probably limitations, but like again, right? Like 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 Mike Bray gets the job at St. John's tomorrow. Like, what do you wait? Like, what is he waking up and doing to build the thing? Order of business is try to get. Posh Alexander and Joel Soriano and AJ Store, who's had actually a very solid season. Keep them in there and ask Mr. Curbelo to take a hike. Yeah, but like like his like the staff like he 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 his staff at Notre Dame has not been very good, um, or at least has not been very well regarded in terms of like where they. Came. But, I mean, we used to joke about it all the time. You go on verbal commits. And Xavier's got 25 names. Providence has got 20 names. You know, all the all these teams have all these names listed for offers. And Notre Dame would have like two offers out. Yes. Like Notre Dame, Villanova, and Duke and Kentucky would all have like four offers. Like uh, one of these is not like the other. Yeah. To me, like I would not be a fan of that hire if I was St. John's. Would I like it more than Bobby Hurley? I, I think, think so. He's a better coach. Bobby Hurley can really hit the portal, though. That's true. It just right, never no, works I, out. Right. I think, <laughs> right, I, I think, like, you hire Bobby Hurley, I feel pretty good that, like, you're going to have, like, a competitive roster in year one. The team might not be competitive, but that roster on paper is going to be right. nice and sharp. But even, like, really, like, it, like it we're making really fun of Arizona State this year, but, like, they're – a, a touch higher than where I had them in the preseason. No, they're competitive. Yeah. They're 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 super fun to watch. They fly up and down. They got athletes. But like, yeah, the fact that Notre Dame, I mean, they haven't even been that good. Like, they they were three and fifteen in the league one of the years. 
They're there this year where they're trending towards that. They were 11 and 15, 7 and 11 in 2020, 21, the COVID year. Like, and part of it's schedule, but like the ACC has not been a juggernaut. Oh, this. Where have, have you sold off any of your Micah Shrewsbury stock? No, I, I still like Shrews. Are we still giving him credit for this year? I mean, this this year is not dissimilar to anything that Pat Chambers ever did. I mean, Pat agreed. Pat, Pat Chambers was always the high Ken Palm. Right, but Pat Chambers wrote record and. But Pat Chambers is an angry white guy, and Micah Shrewsbury coached Jason Tatum. Right, but from 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 the team yes. you're building, oh. Micah shoots more threes. Yes, um, they they're fun. He has they're a little more talent in there. They're more interesting than Penn State was under under yeah. Chambers. With a Pat Chambers, it's kind of like what Oklahoma is now. Or it's like, oh, what a terrible year. They went 12 and 18. Oh, wait, they were 29th in Kempom? <laughs> yeah, there were a couple years there where you're like, okay, like they're they're under 500 and like 47. Yeah. <laughs> um, win big, lose close. No doubt. Um, do you want to talk some basketball basketball obviously we love the carousel it's very interesting the um, the auburn texas a&m game from what was that wednesday yes uh we got the full wendell green experience oh my gosh he was like flying through the lane with like these super um uh, tough floaters and kind of nice off the glass over traffic in traffic and then he had like a crazy turnover he airballed the three to seal it uh we got the full experience and he was quite good against Alabama. I was on the uh, UConn game uh, on uh, Saturday at two. I, thought I, Bama, I, I, did, I, I did catch the end. Um, but yeah. I mean, I think I just I look at Bama right now, and like the way that they're defending teams at the rim, the way that they're driving you. I pointed this out on the field of eight, like. They shot 82% on twos in that game. Auburn shot 34% on twos. And Auburn's one of, if not, you know, they're an elite athletic team. Right. They have Janai Broom in the middle. They have Jalen Williams. Jalen Williams. They have Jalen Cardwell. Yeah. They've got bodies, man. And they just got destroyed at the rim. By Betty Ako and Clowney were just studs. Like, and Jaden Bradley's like an elite driver. Miller's gotten much better going to the basket after struggling with that early in his uh, early in his collegiate career. He's shooting. It's interesting. He's shooting 64% on twos in conference play. Is Brandon Miller uh, in non-con? He had some kind of funky numbers. You know, he had the two for 13 against Carolina, two for nine against UConn. Um, you know, he had some some rough goes, but you know, 0 for three against Houston. But he's been really good, really solid in conference play. They've got Ryland Griffin emerging. Like their quality depth is really impressive, right? Like number nine and number ten are Nick Pringle and Noah Gurley. Absolutely. So I love this Bama team. Like it's funny. Like I was, I was talking to people who were like, I was, I said, you know, I think Bama's the favorite to win it all. And I'm like, really? And I was like, well, who else? Like, give me right. another name. Houston, right. give me a break. The uh, good thing about the 
Auburns and the Northwesterns and the Providences, the Michigan States this year, and, and the Florida Atlantic, right, is the – this is, again, anecdotally, it's a heavy grain of salt, but this has got to be the least intimidating group of one seeds we've ever had, at least in recent memory. Alabama's pretty intimidating, but I'm not scared at one bit of Houston or Purdue or whoever the fourth one seed is now. Kansas. Or Arizona. Oh, Kansas, yeah. No, yeah. Like, I, I was not scared of Kansas at all last year. I was convinced that Providence was, was going to win that game in the Sweet 16. There was a point in the Creighton game down two starters. I was convinced Creighton was going to win. Yeah. I am more scared of that Agbaji, Christian Brown, Kansas team than I am of this Kansas team. And they were the least scary of all the one seeds last year. That's a good – yeah, that's fair. I actually pulled an interesting number on this with Kansas because I love watching this Kansas team. So in Kansas's five losses this season, Dewan Harris has a combined nine total points. In the rest of in the rest of their games, he averages more than nine points per game. The, the the Kansas game I watched last week, he was like dominant. He was dicing them up. He was throwing lobs to backup centers. He was getting to the rim. He was doing it all. I mean, he is an awesome player. It's just I do think you need a guard who's a you, you need a point guard who's a threat, particularly when you're going to start him with Kevin McCullough. Absolutely, and especially when and, and uh, it seems like maybe Yesifu's turned the corner a little bit, but you know, but Bobby Pettiford's not scoring it. You know, they're, they're not, you know, it's not like last year where they had Remy Martin, who was a, basically a failed experiment, who at the end of the day just added some timely offensive pop to kind of move them through the bracket. But, I mean, in, in, in the NCAA tournament, multiple teams were, like, doing the, the Aaron Thompson treatment to Dewan Harris where they were playing with a foot in the lane. You, you can't do that anymore because he's hitting threes now. Yes. He he is I mean it's more like the severe wheeler treatment because true severe is making them but like at you know whatever like wide open threes only. But I think Dewan does a lot better a job of impacting the game because he's I think a better defender. He's a better cutter, a better ball mover than severe wheeler is. I mean, speaking I think that's good, but they're just, yeah, they're just not overwhelming. No question. Speaking of the Aaron Thompson treatment, Andre Jackson is now getting the one one foot in the lane defense treatment. No doubt. No doubt. But unlike, like, Aaron Thompson never wanted to shoot it, I, Andre Jackson is having, like, an existential crisis whenever he touches the ball. And there was one play in the UConn Creighton game over the weekend where he caught the top of the key three-pointer – he was like beyond wide open, and he just took one dribble and took a runner from the free throw line and went in. It's really funny to me watching the reaction on social media every time Andre Jackson has like a you know can't make a shot game because you have like a 
you have a percentage of the UConn fan base that's like, Andre Jackson is the worst player in college basketball history. Why does this guy ever play? You have one section of the UConn fan base that is like, well, Andre Jackson should actually play 40 minutes a game, and he's so good that it doesn't matter that teams are literally not guarding him and we can't score because he's not because he's on the floor. He's so good at everything else. And, like, the truth is that he's a really impactful player, but when teams, particularly late in games, can overplay the way that they did, you have to get him off the floor. And that's what UConn had to do against Creighton down the stretch. And, look, are, 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 is that game in the, in the 50s? If Andre Jackson doesn't play at all, probably not. But when when you're talking about him being a liability and you have to take him out of the game, that's a huge problem, particularly for a team that has such inconsistent guard play outside of him, right? I mean, Newton one day is a triple-double. The next day he's useless. Hawkins is just a shooter. Calcaterra is super, super streaky. Diara doesn't do anything like their guard play is just so uneven. So then you're going to add in hot, um, Jackson. Like, you're just asking for a disaster. And even, like, Caravan has kind of slowed down a little bit. Like, I think UConn's starting to play well. But, like, Caravan has scored, you know, fewer than five points in three of his last five games. Well, this is what I didn't understand, is when, when, when UConn was playing poorly – and, you know, Hurley's promising changes and stuff. And, you know, different people were throwing out different potential lineup solutions. I, I didn't understand why they weren't playing Diara and Newton together and playing Jackson at the four. Or, or, or Caravan at the four. But it felt like the comment, right, that everyone says about UConn is that Tristan Newton's not a point guard. He's a scorer. Everyone says that. Any blurb you read about UConn that mentions their guard play will say something similar to Tristan Newton is not a point guard. He is a scorer. Say, all right, well, put Diara on the ball. Put Newton at the two where he can be the scorer. um, Hawkins at the three. And then either Jackson or Caravan at the four and then one of the bigs. There you go. Done. Um, But they ended up just kind of powering through with the same lineup. And uh, even though they lose this game, I still think still think they're obviously playing better. They blew out Marquette, um, which is which is a good matchup for them. But um, it looks like that is the lineup moving forward, and it looks like it'll work, even with the kind of Andre Jackson hiccup. I mean, I I think Creighton's the best team in the Big East. I've I've said that since they were like two and three in the conference uh, before they rattled off his winning streak. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was firmly on the don't don't be worried, just let their best player come back. Um, and, and I think that's that's the best team in the conference. And you lost a one possession game on the road to them, so I I wouldn't freak out or blow anything up at after Saturday's performance. Right. I think the only problem, the only issue you have with UConn is. I just don't know how they can be consistent enough offensively to win a championship. Right. Yeah. And that, that fair or not, that's the standard that was set by the first 14, 15 games of the year. And, you know, look, they, they were so nuclear in the early season and, and you want to think, okay, they could just click it back into gear and it'll go. But like, does anyone really believe that they could do that at this point? 
Well, no, and, and the thing is, you know, their seeding, right? I think they're probably going to get like a four seed. Yeah. So you know, four if they win the Big East tournament, they could maybe get back to a three. Those those games don't count though. That's true. Um, I I think that they're going to be a four seed. I think that they are going to, you know, they 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 should probably match up well with a mid major thirteen seed. Uh, and then that second round game, you're playing a comparable team. You know, you're playing TCU or St. Mary's or Miami. Um, you know, team teams that that are pretty good and can beat you. Um, so that's just, you know, and then in round three, if, if, if you make it that far, you might be going up against Alabama again, you go against Zach Eady, you know, there's, you, you could play Texas, which could be a weird matchup. Although I, I, I think UConn's size at the center position might, uh, went out there, but you know, that's, that's, that's a super tough road. I mean, look, and if UConn does not, does not make the second weekend, it will be like an existential crisis. It was for Ohio State when they. I mean, we were talking about the the validity to want or the you know how reasonable it is to want Chris Holtman fired. Ohio State made the second round last year. They were two seed the year before. UConn just had they they just lost in the first round last year to a team that just closed up shop. Okay, but they have a different coach than when they closed up shop. And and different players, obviously, because that's what many it, different players, yes. New Mexico State does is they just kind of roll it out and they redshirt seven guys and cycling some new boys, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, because again, like with Danny Hurley, what would you do differently building the program than what he's done? They have an absolute monster class coming. Right. No, you have to keep it right. But they, they, because of the way they started this year. And I mean, they've been top top twenty five team the last three years. If they get bounced though in the first weekend, it's going to be like Dan Hurley has no chance to ever live up to the UConn brand. People will say that, but I mean, I, I I've been trying to not look ahead so much to next year because of all the portal and the COVID years, you know, making you want to bang your head against the wall tr- trying to figure this stuff out. But if next year's lineup is Newton, Castle, Jackson, Caravan, and Klingon, with like a lean and a and Diara and all these freshmen off the bench, like they could be really good again. Clinton could be Edie next year. I think it could be sophomore Edie. Do we know what sophomore Edie was? Because he was, you know, they were really slow playing him, giving half his minutes to Travion. I mean, we watched enough to know. He was pretty good, pretty darn good. Might have been an All-American if he had gotten to play the full minutes. Yeah. He's definitely better this year. Yeah, definitely. He's a little quicker. He's more decisive. Yeah. Very, like, much more confident. Yeah, more more coordinated in there. No, no, you're right. You're right. But it, that doesn't mean that it won't be, like, an all-time message. It'll be a message board meltdown. Like, get, get to the Boneyard at 241 if they lose, you know, the 413 game. Oh my god! If they lose the four thirteen game, like somebody's gonna want Danny Hurley's head on a stake. Yeah. At least if they, uh, at least if they win the first round game and then lose to a high major, there'll be like a you know twenty five percent segment of the fan base being like, well, let's be rational here. You know, we lost the game to a 
quality team that we probably, you know, 50-50 game, whatever. Disappointing, but that's March, you know. They lose the 4-13 game. The, 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 the boneyard will be bananas. Speaking of something bananas that happened, I guess, over the weekend. Oh, dear. Are we talking about New Mexico State now? No, no. Um, <laughs> I'm loving the fact that that's, that's not it, no. Well, I, I mean, it's not, not as bad as New Mexico State or as unexpected as New Mexico State, but it is notable nonetheless. Um, URI dismissed Brian Freeman, who was their second-leading scorer. Coming into the year, he was supposed to be their best player. Apparently, I read on the message boards that so they played at George Mason over the weekend. Brian Freeman is from the DMV, I guess, area. So his family was there sitting behind the bench and was heckling Archie Miller the whole game. I mean, that's incredible. And then today they're like, all right, you're done, dude. <laughs> so it, they also gave him a, a leave of absence at the start of the season because he was like freaking out whenever he missed a shot. Um, and then, I mean, this is like kind of killer for URI. They're pulling the plug on the guy who was supposed to be their best player in this rebuild with three years of eligibility left. So I actually, I actually don't think it's a killer. I think it's actually a good thing. And I'll tell you, like, please do tell me why. No, so that'd be great podcasting. <laughs> no, I actually think it's a good thing. Do you care to elaborate? Nope. Um, but no, so 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 here's my thing. You only get one chance to actually build it slow, right? And I'll use an example here. Luke Yaklich at UIC. Just because, you know, it's in Chicago, I follow it, whatever. Luke Yaklich, the first two years, tried to take, like, idiot transfers. Like, you know, low major kids who were, you know, complete, you know, crazy, like, completely crazy, like, had crazy expectations, wanted this. They, you know, didn't run his own, couldn't, couldn't run his own program, right? But was trying to, you know, get a good, get good fast, rebuild, get to the top of the league, see, see where the chips fall, right? Okay, that didn't work. Now it's year three. Well, now you just have to keep doing it, right? You can't, you can't now it's year three. All right, now we're going to take the freshmen we like. Now we're going to get like culture kids. Now we're going to build it the right way. We're going to, you know, we're going to get our type of people in this program, right? If you're Archie and you took, and again, I don't know Brown Freeman. Um, I don't, I can't say he's a bad kid, whatever. Like I've never met him. I don't really know the story. I will say like when he was in the portal, um, some people told me he was not like, he was not the like, oh my God, you have to have this kid that I think a lot of people said, oh, well, three years of eligibility, you know, already, you know, double figures in the A-10. It's Top 125 recruit. Because I, 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 I asked people, I was like, why are you not going? No, no, we're not doing it. Not doing it. So it had to be something there, right? Um, so if I'm, if I'm Archie, I'm either riding, you know, I'm either on the ship and sinking with Brian Freeman or I throw him overboard and I get to do it my way. Right. And at some point, like, you know, you're not good enough, right? Like, you know, this team stinks, you know, that, you know, <laughs> like, you know, that next year you're probably defined not by Brian Freeman, but by 
these young players you've been bringing in, you bring in a lot of transfers um, or a lot of freshmen, excuse me. We've talked from the beginning really that, um, that Archie has been very kind of future focused, trying to get three-year transfers, trying to get freshmen, not necessarily just trying to quick flip this thing. So instead of dealing with, oh my gosh, you know, why is URI not, you know, at the top of the league, they've got this good player and having to sacrifice your values as a program to deal with a kid you're probably not winning with, right? Like you're probably not winning with this kid because you're not right now. I'd rather, and I'm presumably he's a bad culture guy. Otherwise, why would you kick him off the team? Um, this gives you a chance to do it right. This gives you a chance to, in year two, play these freshmen, um, give them experience, get a couple of transfers who fit who you are, and then see, see, the, see, see where you are. Because if they had went this spring, oh, well, we've got this you know building block type player in Brayon Freeman. We've got you know a couple more of these guys. Now let's go try to let's try to win in year two and they don't all of a sudden it's going to be like calling for Archie's head entering year three. And he's going to have to take these shitty transfers. So my, where I differ is that once you're, I, I, I think once you're, you know, maybe it's different at URI versus a more relevant team. But once you whiff, that big on your star transfer in the first year, like how do you come back from that, right? Because now you're looking at next year where this season you're at the bottom of a down A-10. Your best player, Ishmael Leggett, you obviously hope you get him back, but in the transfer portal days, you know, this isn't Dan Hurley's URI. You know, you know this isn't out. Al, Al Skinner or, 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 or Tom Penders is URI, right? Like, this is a mid-major right now. The whole A-10 is, is mired in mid-major. I don't think a transfer is going to see URI as this top 25 program who made the second round of the tournament just a couple of years ago with Dan Hurley. I, I, I don't think that's even, like, it, even remotely in their consciousness. They're gonna, if, if they're going to get a player – with Freeman's talent in the portal, they're going to have to take another flyer on a questionable kid who, you know, as, as you said, you spoke with all these coaches. I, I, I presume most of them were at better programs than URI and they wouldn't take them. How is URI? Many a comparable programs to URI. Okay. But how is URI going to get that player in the portal plus whatever they need? But you don't need, I don't think you need Brian Freeman to win. Like, you need you need a couple of dudes, but you need you need guys who fit. You need guys who are bought in. You need guys who are smart. Like you need kids. You need kids who are competitive. Like if you have kids whose parents are complaining about playing time during a game, right? And again, this is message board fodder. Like you're never gonna win with those kids. So so for me, like. For me, like I, I look at, at URI's class and I see some really good players, like kids that I've watched in AAU, and like that kid can play. You mean like Connor Dubsky, right? That's that's a shooter. Yes. Hold on. 
try to pull the other guys. Um, Rhode Island, Rhode Island, Rhode Island. My uh, my thing is right is that the fans are like you know we should we should be an at large team again like we were Dan Hurley. How how do we get back there? Okay, first step, hire a killer coach. You did that, Archie yeah. Miller paying the big bucks. Yes. Second step, hit the portal, and then he's like, ah, I, I, I'm going with with guys with tons of eligibility. I'm like, all right, um, I guess they'll be middle of the pack, a ten. Now, in all fairness to Archie and URI, starting center, Joseph Abelau, out out for the season. Starting guard, Anthony Harris, ineligible. So that that right there pretty much doomed him. Um, but, like, on the current roster, I don't really see where the building blocks are. Brandon Weston's young, right? Alex Chacou's pretty young still. Ishla Jack can, can play for you. Absolutely. He's he's got he's got this or he has I believe two years with the COVID year. Yeah. But and you know this isn't URI with EC Matthews and Jared Terrell right. This is a mid-major URI team. Ishlaget, maybe he stays and that's great for URI fans. But the way the way the, the world works now is Ishlaget is probably on NC State or something next year. Or Gonzaga, or, you know, so, somewhere like that. Could be. I mean, look, I just, I just think, like you're saying, oh, how do we get to be an at-large team, right? That's the realistic goal. I just don't think that's ever going to involve Brown Freeman. And that's not this. That's not specific to Brown Freeman. That's like this type of kid, right? This archetype of kid, right? A kid who is way more focused on himself than the team a kid who has gotten in trouble before, like you said, took the lead of absence, right? Like those are not the guys you win with. Those are not the guys you build programs around. Those are the guys that get you fired for sticking with too long. Those are the guys you believe in. You keep saying, well, Brown, if we only get the real, you know, the good Brown and we surround him with the right kids, man, could we be pretty good? Yeah, you could. But that's not like, to me, like to me, that's not the way you get to relevance. You get to relevance by having the right people in your program and building a culture. Did I uh, think I'm a bozo and a coach speak loser for saying that? And I don't care. Did you have any more to add on the URI incoming freshman class? I like the uh, Estevez kid. Okay, that's who I was trying to remember his name of point guard so they they have a couple of nice young three stars coming in but the the reason why why i rushed you to that point was i wanted to pose a question on the a10 at large yes um which they are not going to get any at larges um we know that for the future have have we seen the last of the A-10 as we knew it? Like, is the A-10 done, you think? Why? Where's the reason for optimism, right? If you look at what it was supposed to be this year with, okay, two or three bids, St. Louis has imploded. They're now a quadrant three loss for Providence. I'm still loosely over that loss from November. Dayton's disappointed. Um, their metrics were really good at one point. I think they're way down to, like, the 60s in the metrics. VCU has disappointed. Uh, they they weathered some injuries, uh, but 
if if these Dayton and St. Louis VCU, we or at least I had high hopes for UMass and Loyola to be you know not NIT but like really nice solid you know quadrant one road or quadrant two you know high quadrant two opportunities for teams in the A10. I mean none of this happened. It's a complete disaster this year for the A10. What what about where they are now makes you think that they could get back to you know they always say three big league. You okay, know, well, so 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 two so so two years ago did you feel better about the A10? When the when the A10 had Matt McCall, David Cox, um, Ashley Howard coaching in that league? No, I have not felt good about the A10 in, in a long time. But you but said this, you just felt good about it this preseason. I I I like those. I like Dayton and St. Louis as NCAA tournament teams in the preseason. I like VCU as an NIT, and I like UMass and Loyola to be good. Potential. Okay, so, so so here's my thing though, right? Like the NIT or the A10, excuse me. The Atlantic 10 is doing the right things from like a macro standpoint to get good, right? UMass spent 1.7 on Frank Martin. Archie got a bag from URI, right? Well, Sal even like committed and hired like a decent coach and is trying to build an arena, right? Like they added Loyola, which has been a great program, right? Like whether it works, works, doesn't work, whatever. George Mason went from paying 700 for Dave Paulson to a million for Kim English. They're getting top 150 recruits, right? Like I think at the end of the day, the league is still defined by where VCU and Dayton are. Those are the two highest quality programs in the league in St. Louis, I think to a lesser extent. And those teams have all disappointed. So the league feels down. And I think the league is without question down, right? Like the conference metrics don't lie. They're like, I think 11th or 12th, but like, is there a reason to believe that VCU Dayton and St. Louis are like less well positioned to win now than they were five years ago? Maybe they have the wrong coaches. I'm open to that, right? I'm open to the fact that Travis Ford, not that, you know, is not that good a coach that Anthony Grant has, you know, a, a lower ceiling, than a lot of these uh, other A10, uh, a lot of these other Dayton coaches over over time, or maybe lower uh, floor. I don't am know I, am I mis misremembering, or didn't didn't those three do do this last year too? Underachieved. Dayton had like the four quad four losses and was the yeah. first team out. But they didn't underachieve. I mean, Dayton being in you know in the first the first team out of the field was a great year. No, I think everyone had them in the tournament. In, in the preseason. Yeah. Everyone did. No, they did not. I believe that's revisionist. That's revisionist. Did did you? No. Um. Yes, because I picked them in the league. Because I was buying all the Kamara stock. I think everyone had them. I don't think everyone had them. But either way. But they were like considerably disappointing. I don't think. The 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 Bonnies blew it last year. It was the year that St. Louis um, blew it and then won the conference tournament. Right, but again, like, like, like we're we're talking about like individual failings, like league at large. Why do we think the league is in bad shape? Because it feels like every year these teams, we have a couple teams that build a good roster and people like them to make the NCAA tournament, be a top forty team or whatever, and they fall apart. Right, but the, there's no like, well, why will that continue to happen? Like, what, like, what, what gives you confidence that like? The A10 will forever have underachieving teams at the top. Because we we went from 
And now this this was post New Big East, right? So Xavier and Butler were in, in the Big East at this point, where the A10 had like what six bids, and they had St. Joe's and they had URI and they had um, you know um, I, I think that year was UMass too and VCU, um, and a lot of these teams just feel so far off from getting back to the NCAA tournament. Number one. Number two, the teams that felt close, seemingly we we, we, we overrate them every year. And yes, that's anecdotal. But it feels like every year there's two or three A-10 teams that we all kind of gravitate around to be NCAA tournament teams. And and it it does not happen. Uh, And three, there's still a lot of deadweight coaching in here. In the the coaches that we all agree were great hires, like Frank Martin and Archie Miller – not getting the immediate success that we thought. Loyola's not getting the immediate success that we thought. Feels like we're just kind of spinning our wheels here. Like, DeAndre Dembry's not walking through that door. Tyrone Garland isn't walking through that door. I mean, like, how far they just recruited, is they just did, the, the league just recruited Ace Baldwin and a great player. Deron Holmes is a great player. Javante Perkins is a great player. Your Collins is a great player, right? Like St. Louis is a quadrant three loss for Providence. Who cares? I care. I, I, no, I was low on St. Louis. You're saying you're saying like oh wow like you're saying okay we can't recruit well they can't recruit uh well, why why can't the A10 recruit a guy like uh like Tyrone Garland or you know all these guys? Well they're recruiting Yuri Collins. They're recruiting. Obi Toppin. Obi Toppin was was like in the last like recruiting like the last four years. Obi Toppin went to Dayton or five years. Last five years, Obi took Dayton. Like really? Like well, like I'm open to the idea. Like okay, like okay, well you know maybe the A10 is not well positioned for NIL. I'm not sure I agree with that based on what I'm seeing. But they're they're not positioned well for the portal. I, I don't I don't agree with that. I, I think the A10 has done pretty well in the portal on on paper, right? Like who, the idea that A10 teams are just like chronic underachievers, while possibly true, I don't I don't see why that's predictive. Like Dayton got like a stud in the portal with Kamara and turned out nah, he's not a stud. He's just good. I mean he's he's really good. Dayton is so talented. Like it, it, it is mind-boggling they're not better than they are. Yeah, they're not even close. VCU in the portal got Brandon Johns, who was the butt of every joke in the Big Ten to be a starter. I mean, I, I think the A-10 is done. I don't think we'll ever see them get three bids again. I think they'll get three bids in the next two years. That's that's bold. Not even seeing the rosters. I don't care. I think the league is the league will be fine. That's bolder than me saying that they're never going to get a third bid ever again. I don't think it's bold. Do you do you think it's a coincidence that the American, the A10, and the Missouri Valley were three of the premier mid-major leagues, or seemingly? All headed downward at once. 
I mean, I, the Mountain West, the Mountain West is on its way up at the same time. Missouri Valley lost Creighton. I mean, in Wichita State, that seems like a reasonable reason for the league going downhill and Loyola. I I I think that gap between the top six and everyone else, at least the top six and then the next few is getting wider. I mean, that might be true, but the Mountain West is going to get four bids two years in a row. Which WCC got its first at-large bid in 20 years last year outside of Gonzaga and BYU and St. Mary's. Those those bids are better. Uh, those those leagues are better, right? But it's still a little smoke and mirrors, right? Like, so like, but what's good? Like the ACC is as bad as it's been. The Pac-12 is as bad as it's been. Like, is the SEC that good this year? No. The Big Ten isn't having a great year. The Big Ten's having a pretty standard year. Like, like, what leagues are we saying are, like, overachieving to claim this success that's like creating this divide? It was the the Mountain West this year hit, like, a perfect storm where their analytics were all good. You know, a couple teams hit at the same time that was able to, to you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. But that same thing happened last year with different teams. I think maybe why the Mountain West could be different than the other one, well, the other leagues maybe, at least different than the A10, right? Is maybe you're on TV more, maybe on the West Coast, the gap between, you know, is a guy really going to transfer up from the Mountain West to the Pac-12? That's not a huge jump. How many yeah. guys are transferring up from the A10? Who's transferring up from the A10? Yeah. Providence whole rosters from the A10. Okay, but that's Jared Bynum after a coach got fired, and Ed Croswell after being on the worst team in the A10. And and uh, Clifton, and Clifton Moore. Moore. Yeah, that's not. And that's, Luan Pipkins from a couple years ago. Again, the, but these are like the worst. Jackson. These are all the worst teams in the league. We're like, taking their like San Jose's had transferred. Brandon Clark left. San Jose. So did uh, what's his face? Ryan Wailage. No one at the top of the A10. Like VCU isn't losing Ace Baldwin to the portal. Dayton isn't losing Deuce Holmes to the portal. Um, St. Louis is not losing Javante Perkins. You know, like I, I guess for me, I, I think the one difference is that because there is no, other, there's less competition in the West Coast. That certain players you can get in the portal on the West Coast, you can't get elsewhere, right? So, like, Jared Lucas would be a good example of this. Jared Lucas is leaving Oregon State. He's not going to really transfer within the Pac-12. So his options were, like, go way far away or go to Nevada. He was in Nevada. He's been really good. I think that's, like, a reasonable. And and it seems like these Mountain West teams, at least in terms of vibe, because they have pretty big fan bases, at least showing up to their games, is that they can, can, can probably compete NIL with um, Pac-12. I mean, but so does VC. Why can't VCU and Dayton and Slip? Because they're building these teams and it ain't working. Yeah, it's just not working, though. Like, like at the end of the day, I just think it's coaching. Like, I think it's fully coaching. Right? Like, the, the Mountain West has had great coaches. Nico Medved and Jeff Linder are terrific coaches. Even the coaches at the bottom, like right. Jeff Linder – and Nico Medved and Tim Miles. Um, yeah, Tim Miles, they're, San Jose State's 100th 
than Ken Palm. I mean, those three coaches at the bottom of the Mountain West, they would be up there for the best coaches in the A-10, right? Like, we're talking about the A-10 coaching. I mean, there's still so much kind of, what's the word, kind of turnover needed, I guess. I mean, like, who, I mean, who, I guess who, my, who's the best coach in the A-10? Probably Mike Rhodes. I was going to say Mark Schmidt, but. Okay, that's good. That's fair. Yep. And then how many of these? I mean, I guess a bunch of these are new, so they're kind of wait and see. No one's, yeah, no one's bad. But like, no one wants these coaches. I mean, people may want Drew Valentine and Kim English very shortly, but we'll see. So, 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 but again, but, but, like, again, that's my point. Like, you're making my point for me. The Atlantic 10, and we then we have to end this conversation because it's going way too long and people can feel free to escape through this. Um, the Atlantic 10, having not great coaches, despite investing in good coaches on paper, is not – that's not like a sustainable thing. It's not going to be for 30 years the Atlantic, or for 20 years the Atlantic 10 is going to have bad coaches because they keep making bad hires when they have money and are investing it the right way, right? Like process-wise, like like process-wise, what makes Richard Pitino any different than Frank Martin? What makes Richard Pitino any different than um, <clears throat> or what, 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 what makes Steve Alford any different than Archie Miller? There's nothing different process-wise. Steve Alford won at a good job in the league. Archie Miller won at a good job in the league. He got fired at an elite kind of blue blood type job. He turned around. He went back to that same league. Steve Alford's made, you know, going to make the NCAA tournament this year. Doesn't mean Archie can't. Like, we'll see. So if Archie doesn't work out, Archie doesn't work out. But that doesn't mean that the A-10 is any, is any different position. They're getting the same caliber of coach. When the when the when these jobs are open, Ryan Ryan Odom took Utah State. You're telling me Ryan Odom wouldn't have taken if if the same job was open that off season, wouldn't have taken, you know, VCU, wouldn't have taken Richmond. Of course he would have. Richmond's a way better job for him than Utah State was. So I just I, I just think a lot of it's just like bad luck and circumstance. But anyway. We should probably mention before we wrap up the show, the New Mexico State stuff. I don't have like a ton to say about it, partially because a lot of that I stuff that I know is should still stay um, unreported until police reports and things like that come out. Um, it's not really my place to put things out there, put names out there, et cetera. What I will say is this, and you know, Greg Heyer. Hiring Greg Heyer was a deliberate choice by Mario Mokia, the AD, to hire a renegade, to hire someone who did not care about following the rules, who did not care about um, doing things the right way, who did not care about, um, you know, who, who did not care about the brand of New Mexico State, who did not care about having basketball players who represented that brand who did not care about anything other than getting the most talented players in and trying to win. 
And if you're going to run your program the way that New Mexico State has for the last several years, and it's not just under under Chris Jans, it's under Marvin Menzies. If you are going to do this, if you're going to take kids who have sexual assault allegations, who have, you know, not qualified academically, who have arrests, who have you know, been kicked off teams. You better have a coach who knows who, who will handle things and keep everyone in line. And Chris Jans did that. And you knew when you looked at Greg Hire's history, and I don't know Greg Hire personally, but people who do would agree. You knew when you brought Greg Hire into this thing that you were going to get chaos. When you hire a guy who's worked for Larry Eustachy, Will Wade, and Greg Marshall, what did you think was going to happen? Chaos. That's what they got. And they got, quite frankly, things that are are disgusting, things that are going to traumatize people, things that lost someone their life. And it pisses me off. And, and the AD should go. I mean, I get Greg, Greg Hire is going to be gone. It's a matter of when. The AD should go, too. And he should not work in college athletics again. Because he put the kid on the team who got hazed for several months. He put that kid in position for that to happen by hiring Greg Hire and by having no oversight. And it's it's a shame. And they better, they better, they better do some real soul searching in New Mexico State if this is the type of program they want to be. And they're moving out to a new league next year, right? That's correct. Conference USA, which, quite frankly, I don't think will be a better basketball league than the WAC is right now. Right, because who, who the hell even knows who's in Conference USA anymore? UTEP, Western Kentucky. Middle Tennessee, um, Louisiana Tech, FIU. Uh, Those are some good programs. Yeah, it's not bad, but yeah. is it better than the WAC right now? The WAC is like 12th. In the the WAC is rolling. I mean, between Sam Houston and Utah Valley. Yeah. Sam Houston is going to Conference USA as well. So it'll be interesting. I mean, look. I'm I'm just so I'm so angry about this because this was completely avoidable. And I'm not going to do the oh well they had to hire James Miller thing because sure James Miller probably would have done a good job but there are dozens of coaches who could have taken problem childs right they could have taken kids who've had issues but they wouldn't have as little spine as Greg Hire did like. When he did the police interview after the Mike Peake situation, he said, oh, well, I, I didn't really know the kid. I've only been coaching him six months. Get out. They drove the bus away from a crime scene. This is less than a year. Only at New Mexico State. Only at New Mexico State. A player kill another person. A coach, coaches be involved in attempting to cover up that crime and not cooperate in any way with the authorities. And that not be the thing that sinks you. That's not the thing that got you fired this year. Think about that. I'm sorry I'm yelling. I'm sorry I'm pissed. But there's way too many good people in college basketball to be dealing with 
scumbags like this. And that's what they are. That's all I got. Yeah, nothing else. Sorry to end the podcast on such a down note, folks. But um, we'll be following the story as it develops. There will be lots to come. It'll be interesting to see what punishments come about. Will there be an NCAA punishment potentially? Obviously, a potential AD change could make happen. This is all time college coach behavior with college coaches texting me. Who's getting New Mexico State the night it happened or the night that things got released? The athletic director is probably not in place yet. The person who's making the hire is not even there. How am I supposed to know who's going to get the job? No one has any idea. But that is a place where you can win. And I think a place where you can win more responsibly than Greg Hire tried to. And it is not surprising, but it is very disappointing nonetheless. So that's where we are. Thank you all for listening as always. Please feel free to give us a review uh, or a rating on Apple Podcasts if you think this was good podca- good podcasting. I'm not sure I agree, but happily hear your thoughts. Um, And we will see you all next week, one week closer to Selection Sunday. Thanks for listening.